Um, and also um, another thing, local people at this point don't really distinguish green iguana from delicatissima. To them, it's just a pest. So they actually do kill them, even though delicatissima is protected under local law. But I mean, on a small island, who's going to walk around looking for, you know, protecting an iguana? It's just a lot. That is Renata Carlson. Renata is the human behind the social media handle Reptile Function, which you might recognize from Instagram or Facebook. She is a unique person in the hobby. She's working with a few unique species of iguana. So she works with Cyclora, which is your rock iguanas, but she's also working with a species called Delicatissima, which is a, an iguana species that you may have not heard of. They are endangered in the world right now, and she is one of the only people breeding them in the United States right now. And I want you to listen very carefully to the way she answers the questions that I ask. You can tell that she has a unique and authentic interest in helping these animals and has nothing to do with making money or creating a business. It has everything, every decision she makes and, and every decision that she reveals during the podcast, you can tell it's coming from a place where she's just trying to help the animals. And you, you'll pick up on it along the way throughout the interview. You'll know exactly what I mean when you listen to her answer the questions. So I won't say much more than that. It was a really fun interview and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Before I hit play on the interview, I do want to make three quick announcements. The first announcement is I want to thank TNT Reptiles uh, on Instagram. They're one of the listeners to the show, and they actually recommended both this guest as well as the guest from my previous episode, Corey from Toothless Reptiles. So I huge shout out to them. Thank you so much for, for sending me recommendations. If you have any rec recommendations out there, definitely send them. You can send them to me by DM on Instagram or an email at hello at animalsathome.ca. I really, really appreciate it because... The content has been awesome. The second announcement is I received word from the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy or ARC that someone, one of the Animals at Home listeners actually made a $100 donation to the charity. So thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. If you are one of that individual, that was awesome. And the third thing before we hit play, if you're listening to this on iTunes or any other podcasting app, you may want to go back to the YouTube version at some point because I do clip in just a short clip of Don Juan who is Renata's Delicatissima um, iguana so there's a few just kind of video clips that you can actually see what they look like so if you do want to go back eventually to the YouTube version you you may like that as well all right enjoy the show hi I'm Dylan and you're listening to the animals at home podcast Renata thank you so much for joining me today I really appreciate it Hi, Dylan. It's great to be here. <laughs> well, we were just chatting before the official, uh, before we officially started. So I know you just got back from vacation not long ago. So you are busy getting back to normal life, I'm sure. So I'm grateful oh, that you yeah. could uh, take Missed the time. Oh, yeah. Missed my iguanas. <laughs> I, be I bet you did. And uh, actually, one of my listeners uh, suggested I reach out to you and ask if you'd come on the show because I think they follow you on Instagram and they're really interested in what you're up to. And one of the challenges for me as a podcast host is finding people who are up to interesting and unique things. And there's so many people in the hobby that are doing similar things and you are right, not doing something right. similar. You're doing something very unique. So we're going to get into that because I, I, it's a very interesting. But <laughs> cool. uh, before we do that, can we... Let's figure out how you got to where you are today. How? What was your introduction to uh, to the hobby? Um, you know what? I actually only started about 15 years ago. Um, I can't say I had reptiles all my life at all. Um, about 15 years ago, me and my husband, we were living in a small apartment. Well, not small, decent-sized apartment, I guess, <laughs> um, in San Diego. And we just kind of decided to get a pet. And most people get like, a oh, cat, dog, you know, it's like a typical pet. And we're like, yeah, you know, I'm not much of a cat person. I mean, I don't hate them. I just don't want to have one. And dogs really are needy. They need to have assistance three times a day. And the sad thing is people who keep 
pets like that in apartment and they leave the house and then poor these dogs were barking freaking all day long so um that was just kind of like making me feel very sad so like all right let's get a pet that doesn't have vocal cords so that <laughs> they kind of limit you to what you have so all right we'll look at different reptiles uh, Again, we decided against snakes. Just none of us really kept snakes, and I'm not a big fan of shopping for dead rats. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, I so, you. right? <laughs> um, you know, so what kind of um, reptile pet would be okay to live in, you know, medium-sized apartment? And we're like, all right, well, look at iguanas. They eat greens. You know, you can go to the grocery store and get any sorts of greens. And, um, you know, obviously, they have specific diet. And we're like, all right, well, we're stuck with that. And we looked at the green iguanas at the time because that's pretty much that's always available. However, um, you know, as you know, a lot of breeders of green iguanas don't really put a lot of efforts on genetics or anything. They just breed them and breed them, whatever. And they're kind of a, I hate to say it, inexpensive disposable pets at times. Um, you know, it's just very sad, actually. But I also heard like sometimes they can turn little bit of an asshole kind of attitude so a lot of people struggle during the breeding season you know with bites and this and that and we're like all right we want something that's more intelligent that's more you know and also lives perhaps longer and we found a local breeder here in california david blair um i mean he's already retired um at this point but he was an amazing gentleman to meet and we met him in person and he showed us a little baby cyclura he had and um, basically he gave us all the necessary information and that's kind of how we got um, our first uh, reptile and that was Cyclura Lewisi hybrid. Her name is Yasha and I had her since she was a uh, very few, uh, few weeks old and I still have her and then we got more Cyclura and then I got more iguana. So it's just like, ah, my herd is growing. <laughs> wow. Running out of space, time to get a new house. Literally running out of space. <laughs> they grow big. So, you know, like you get babies, everybody get excited to get babies, but then they get ginormous and you're like, okay, each of them needs a room, really. Right. So yeah, yeah. Cage, is, cage is kind of temporary thing. You know, you put them there for a few hours, it's their base. But when they want to come out, they want to roam around the house or so go outside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's interesting that you actually, thats you started with Cyclora. You didn't have anything before that. That was your, nope. your first introduction. I go straight up to the top. <laughs> wow. That's a, that's a big a big jump right into the hobbies. That, that's pretty cool. And actually, I had talked to an iguana breeder a few uh, months ago, and I didn't realize how like you were saying, how bad the green iguana trade can, can get and, and how cheap that like people are buying these baby green, green iguanas for like $15. I mean, they're cute, yeah. Yeah, they're cute. But I'm not like, allowed to go to a pet store. <laughs> Do you come home with animals? <laughs> well, I just don't go to the pet stores. <laughs> you just avoid it. I do. Yeah, yeah. So then, and then you also got into Delicatissima at some point. Well, yes, Delicatissima, um, it was somewhat um, obviously recent because most people haven't even heard of them. And they're extremely unique and they're endangered, unfortunately. So I was offered a very, very unique opportunity um, four and a half years ago um, when the imports were coming in from the reputable captive breeder from Austria. And... Um, so I just couldn't say no, even though I didn't have direct experience with them. And, you know, I had experience with Cyclura at the time. And um, so I'm like, all right, well, let's try this and see what happens. So I did acquire Don Juan and um, a female at the time, Venus. So, and uh, yeah, I had him since then. And, you know, my interest actually 
as I started keeping them, grew bigger and bigger because I started to learn more and more about the species. You know, something you keep, you get personal interest. So I wanted to find out why they're extinct, why they're so hard to breed, uh, why there is not a lot of them out here, why does nobody hear about them, what's going on with these species. So I, and you know, in the United States at the time, I believe I was the second person to own them. That's how rare they are. So, and yeah, exactly. And there's no Facebook pages or anything. Well, there's one now, Delicatissima <laughs> Club, which I admin. But um, yeah, so generally there was like the only questions you could possibly ask would be, you know, the breeder overseas and figure out stuff on your own. So I went the route and tried to figure out on my own, um, actually travel to the islands to really observe them and figure out um, how to make them happy because at first I would say a couple, two years they were doing okay, but not really thriving and I couldn't figure out why. So it took me time. <laughs> so, so when you acquired them, you had them for a few years and then you decided that I, you're just going to go to the islands, the Antillian islands, just to see how they lived or, or tell me about that process. Cause I think that's really unique that you went to the place where they live to study how, how they behave in the wild. Yeah, it, you know, it just kind of happened. Um, I mean, obviously I had very, personal interest and because these are really not cheap animals and you kind of want them to thrive and I wanted to be more than just keeping them I wanted them to be I want to be successful at it and um, you know what's the best way you would do or any scientist or biologist would do you just go to their native habitat and you see how they live what they eat how they behave what's going on what's their natural demeanor how do they socialize and um Going to the Lesser Antillian Islands just kind of fell in my lap. Uh, we had a group of people that were going to sail there, and they just kind of invited me. And while looking at the map, ooh, I know those islands. I know who lives there. I must go there. <laughs> so that's kind of like I signed up, and we just went on this um, little bit of a sailing. Um, again, uh, the friends I went with were not really into iguanas, so, um, so I did a little bit of my own thing. Um, we went to Guadalupe. Um, and then some of the neighboring islands uh, where lesser Antillian guanas still exist. And um, uh, I specifically contacted uh, local biologists and researchers who still study them or, you know, at least are aware of them because most local people, like, don't even understand why is this iguana special or what is it. So, and, um, yeah, I was able to meet up with this uh, great professor and um, he studies, he goes to different areas and he locates them and, you know, you can see the hybridization is taking place really strongly. There is never not much pure left in the wild. So hybridization is one of the reasons they're going extinct. Uh, invasive green iguana is able to breed with them. And as soon as that happens, the genetic pool is all ruined, basically. On that whole island, you... You know, there's already several generation hybrids existing there. Can and, you and visually tell a hybrid when you see one? Is it very yes. easy to see? Okay. Yes. So yes, actually, there's visual markings, correct. So for, for the people that aren't sure of what that, well, the cycloras we know are the, the rock iguanas. I think most people are familiar with, with rock iguanas. But for Delicatissima, can you just describe a little bit what they look like, uh, why they're different than a green iguana? Um, well, um, yes, obviously the body has, uh, they're much smaller than green iguanas. Uh, they don't have any markings like green iguana. Their tails don't have any stripes. They don't have any stripes in their bodies. So they're a solid color. 
Um, and uh, their head shape is completely different than iguana. It's a green iguana. Um, Delicatissima has more rounded shape. They have extended very long chin spikes. The face has a lot of pink coloration to it. They also have um, um, brain bumps, <laughs> as they call them. Uh, they don't have the big um, scales on their cheeks like green iguanas have. That's first sign, you know, no big scales. So, but some hybrids can inherit a little bit of both, but they seem to in, inherit more of a green iguana looks. So it's kind of, you know, and they always gonna have some sort of pattern on a tail peeking through. So you can tell that. Interesting. Yeah. So when you went down there, what are some of the things that you learned while you were observing them? Well, um, actually I was really, really sad at one point because, um, um, the land development, uh, what happens on the islands, they get populated. So they clear off the natural habitat and they start, start building rather it's property, residential hotels, or things like sugarcane for rum production, uh, bananas for export, you know, you name it. Um, people want to survive on the islands, So they struggle for work and obviously they're going to develop land to create more agriculture or whatever they, you know, tourism, whatever they can. Um, another thing is um, obviously hybridization is big deal. People bring in green iguanas as pets or they just make it on the island on their own somehow during the hurricanes or on the boats as stowaways and then they breed. Um, another thing was problematic is um, uh, because green iguana breeds so aggressively compared to the Decatissima, uh, green iguana can produce anywhere from 40 to 60 eggs uh, on a clutch, where Delicatissima, um, because it's smaller species, only produces between 6 and 16 eggs. And not every clutch is going to be fertile, not every egg is going to hatch. Then you have cats and dogs preying on hatchlings, birds, not everybody survives. Cars get hit. Um, and also, um, another thing, local people at this point don't really distinguish green iguana from Delicatissima. To them, it's just a pest because they raid their gardens. They kind of like considered, you know, like people just really don't like them there because they come eat your fruit, they come eat your flowers, and they're like, I'm going to kill you. So they actually do kill them, even though Delicatissima is protected under local law, but I mean, on a small island, who's going to walk around? looking for, you know, protecting an iguana. It's just a lot of poverty and sometimes poor people just end up killing them or eating them. Right. Yeah. And actually that was one of the questions I was going to ask. I, I remember I had this friend who came and visited uh, me in Canada from New Zealand and she was totally obsessed with squirrels. Like she, every squirrel she saw, she had to point out. She thought they were so cool. And of course, we're so used to squirrels that we were just like, yeah, they're squirrels. We don't care. And so I wondered how they, how the iguanas are seen on the island. And that answers it, I guess. They are seen as more of a pest, which is totally Pest or food. Right, or food, yeah. And they don't care that it's an endangered species. They really. don't know the difference. A lot. There's really not much education happening. Um, and again, because, you know, a lot of islands do have a lot of poor people on them, you know, it's just, uh, you know, when you're poor and you want to eat, you're going to catch a fish, you're going to catch an iguana. And there's another thing because Delicatissima has such a um, gentle demeanor to them. They're, there is something about them. They're, I mean, yes, they're even in the wild, but not as critically, not as crazy wild, so to speak. You know, you can literally, literally could like sneak up on one and 
grab one without it going freaking out on you. You know, the adult ones, they get pretty chill around people. They don't consider you a threat. Where green iguanas are a lot harder to catch. They're like, man, you ain't not touching me. They're like running around. So they're actually, so I hate to say it. It's like um, the reaching out and grabbing iguana delicatissima while it sits on some tree or shaking the tree till it's like falls down and grabbing it. It's really not that challenging. Um, they just seem to be more trustworthy of people in general. Interesting. So, so, so the the green iguanas are not native to those islands. No, they, not all, at all. Oh, they got it. Yeah, they're invasive, and they started appearing as people started to bring more commerce, and um, you know they get the stowaways on the ships because there's a lot more trading going on between the islands. But that's just, yeah, and natively, all these islands only had Iguana Delicatissima on them, uh, no green iguanas. And that just started to appear, I want to say, about 40, 50 years ago, the first. And then some islands are more protective of that. Some islands just don't care, whatever. Nobody's there to enforce anything. It just happens. Right. Wow. So after learning all this, is that what really motivated you to try to create a breeding project here at home? You know, it's interesting. When I got those iguanas, I just wonder how I'm as pets. There's really no intention to, to become like, oh my gosh, I have to have to breed them. So they're my pets first, mm-hmm. you know, rather they breed or not. That's a different question. And um, I am very hands on and interactive my, with all my iguanas. To me, they're like I said, they're pets first. So I socialize with them every single day. They're all toilet trained. They all come for attention. They're, you know, they're my companions. And I really enjoy it. And I think they learn to be so relaxed around us, um, around me. And they, you know, treat me as one of their circle club iguana people, <laughs> the humans. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, they, they, you know, they really don't act stress around me. So I think by keeping them so relaxed, um, made them not to be aware or stressed in, that I am present there. So when there was a mating season between um, Don Juan and Venus, I noticed um, that, um, you know, they were kind of trying to mate. I'm like, I just like, all right, well, mm -hmm, what am I going to do? Let let it happen. So I had no intention of like, you know, making it. It wasn't like my sole purpose, but she did get gravid. And, um, you know, since I already have an incubator, I incubated Cyclura in the past. So I'm like, all right, well, let's try this. You know, nobody could give me any information. How do you incubate a delicatissima? Same as green iguana. All right. I don't know. I never incubated green iguana. (laughs) (laughs) I only incubated cyclura. So I just basically used the same principle. And voila, 100% fertile clutch, 100% hatch rate. And it's actually somewhat unusual um, in captive breeding. That's one of the reasons delicatissima is hard to breed in captivity because for whatever reason, A, they just don't always get relaxed to, I guess, mate properly. So a lot of, like, even people who tried breeding them before, including the zoos, um, it's just they don't get fertile clutches. Or if they do get fertile eggs, there is something about it that on the last term of incubation, the embryos inside the eggs die. So they fail to hatch. So you'll have a fully developed um, egg with the embryo in it and, like, a literally – 10 days, week before the hatch date is just fails to hatch. And that no, I, as far as I know, nobody knows why. I don't know if anybody's really studying it. I don't really think so at this point. It's a question mark. But I have actually uh, was successful to produce three clutches at this point. 
So, you know. Wow. I'm pretty so, happy. So they obviously are. <laughs> it's just yeah. happening in my hood. <laughs> so you're doing something right. There's Don Juan li- yeah, Don Juan lives up to his name expectation. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're obviously a very delicate species. They have sort of a bunch of strikes against them in terms of them being difficult I to breed know. and being a little bit more mellow in the wild. It's, it, that's tough. And I really think, in, and that's kind of a, in the sense of why I think they're making such a great pets. Um, I know it sounds kind of like, okay, endangered species, great pets. But really, like Don Juan, um, um, he just grew so attached to me. And... Uh, you know, he treats me like he has no tendency of biting at all. And I don't know if that's just because he he is mine or if, if all of them are like that. I know a few other keepers who, who keep them don't really handle them the way I do. But um, I think with socializing and handling, like he has no intention of biting even during the mating season. He is just, you know, he's more hyper, but he has no tendency of attacking a human. He somehow understands or knows um, they also, the way their mouths are, can he bite? Perhaps, yes. But they're so rounded. They, it's just, you know, he can barely eat fruit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like struggling with it. They're leaf yeah. eaters, they're grazers. So they really, you know, have no tendency of attacking a human. At least Don Juan doesn't. Interesting. Yeah, because um, obviously green iguanas, you hear lots of stories of, of especially mating aggression where they can become quite dangerous. In, I know. In and that's, it's really scary. I, I have a lot of friends on Facebook, Instagram. I mean, I follow them. I was like, ooh, you know, they freaking have to put a space suit before they go face their iguana during the mating season. Like, yeah. you know, the whole the whole freaking outfit, gloves, scarf, mask, <laughs> you know, coming in with like, okay, here's your food dish. <laughs> Toss yeah. it at them and run out like, well, there's a mayhem going on. So anyway, um, yeah, it's kind of sad. But then again, when the mating season's over, they seem to mellow out and become sweet pets again. But not like, not with Delicatissima. I mean, you know, they have some requirements, obviously, for keeping them. Uh, they're arboreal species and they need certain things for, I think, psychological rest. But rather than that, um, I mean, if they're if they're that chill like all like my couple my pairing you know they would make awesome pets iguana pets have the the babies that they've had they've gone out into the the pet trade people have purchased them for their own pets or or what happened with them well um i kept my first clutch for about a year just for observation because i wanted to learn i wanted to establish the weight growth the growth rate how they starting to eat like i would never place an animal to a new home without actually knowing what's going on because it's a new species. You know, I wanted to know what's going on. So um, I personally find uh, homes myself, you know, I do have uh, iguanas available and um, uh, my first clutch, I still have three available that are over a year old, which is kind of cute to good to see them develop and mature and ch- start changing colors a little. Um, I have seven second clutch. Uh, I still have seven babies available that are about seven months old. Um, and I have two months old, uh, six pairs. So, yeah, I mean, I usually just people kind of find me because they're so rare and there's just really not much out there in U.S. market at all. Actually, I think it's me. And that's pretty much it. There is another gentleman um, who has import, but rather than that, that's, you know, I am the only, you know, that provide them. But I will also give you the care and instructions because I know firsthand how difficult they can be for the first couple of years. So I do provide guidance and 
all my experience, you know, I think that's kind of priceless to what I had to go through. So I'm not going to just throw the iguana at you here, figure it out on your own. So <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's one of the issues with the pet hobby in general is that someone may have been in the same situation that you have been in, have a clutch of eggs and then immediately sold them because you have this rare species. But the fact that you held on to them just to learn and study them really says a lot. Like it seems like you tilt a lot more towards a, a passion rather than a, a business. Well, thank you. I mean, actually, yeah, like I said, iguanas to me is just a hobby. I have full-time business that not relevant to reptile business at all. So, you know, I don't rely on reptiles for any income. You know, obviously, they cost money to keep and a lot of time, a lot of time for cleaning, you know, feeding them, interacting with them with babies. I socialize them as well. So I don't just like keep them locked up and like here. You know, so, but I do enjoy it. It's my zen. Uh, it's my fun time, you know, um, you know, I would rather play with the guanas than watch TV. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, and then when I find people who are just this passionate or just want to keep them and be successful, I'm more than happy, you know, to place them in the, in their, you know, give them to them and, you know, sell them. And um, obviously getting some reward back is great as well because it is hard work. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Especially yeah. when you're kind of a trailblazer in, in this, like you can't, there's no care <laughs> sheets out there. Well, I'm working on one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so. really interesting. So is, is there any, I mean, you're saying you were kind of communicating with some of the scientists that are working on the island. Is there anything that they're trying to work on repopulating the species on those islands to, to help the endangerment? Or is it because the green iguanas are there, it's too risky? Um, it's actually a really tough question uh, because, first of all, they have to find a preserved type of space or land or island in their case that, you know, absolutely has 100% no invasion of green iguana. So, and it still under, has to be under, you know, jurisdiction and needs to be governed and needs to be protected or, you know, it needs to be, you know, legit, so to speak. <laughs> So there are a couple, uh, couple of small islands that do exist where they try to repopulate and keep that going. Um, however, again, like anything else, if some hurricane happens or some green iguana somehow makes, makes itself to one of those islands, there is no stopping it. You know, I mean, it's, it's like really hard for somebody who literally has to be like observing them every day and monitoring it. And it's just manpower. I don't think it's quite that possible yet, but yeah, there are some scientists they are European uh, because they're European origin islands, um, Dutch Antilles, less French Antilles. So they're all, you know, belong to European governments. So they're the ones, some are trying to do something and some just say they're trying, but not really doing anything. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a money pit too, if you oh, really think sure. about it. It, it. You know, you need to have resources and funds. And I think there were talks about possibly establishing captive breeding in one of those islands. I don't think it's gone far yet, but I don't know at this point. But that's one of the things that's special about what you're doing is it, it can kind of preserve the species. And if we do unfortunately have to lose them in the wild, at least we have purebred delicatissima that are still here that we can observe and see. Well, that's actually, yeah, that's what makes me really super excited um, because, you know, so far I only have one pairing and they're unrelated. So, but the babies I produce, obviously are all siblings. So, you know, in order for species to survive, you need multiple um, 
specimens. Mm -hmm. Correct. So, and then getting the different, you know, different DNA specimens, you know, we have to work on that because even in captive breeding, you know, if you only have, let's say three, four individuals, they, you inbreed after a certain point, you're not going to save the species. It's going to start declining, you know, and there's only so many generations and then the DNA is just going to get broken. For sure. So yeah, yeah. it's so we're. I mean, there is hope. <laughs> There's definitely hope, and um, you know, it's little by little we're raising awareness and contacting the right people, and hopefully getting some somewhere with it. Do you have any idea how long it takes them to reach sexual maturity, or are you just going to kind of wait and, and guess? Uh, for based on my experience, about three years. At three years old, they can start breeding the males. Uh, females may take close to four years to develop because it's a lot harder to produce eggs, obviously. So yeah, my female um, started producing at four and the male was ready at about three. <laughs> so, so do you think that the reason that you're having success breeding them is just primarily because they are relatively relaxed and they're used to the environment? Like, is that what you think that the zoos and things are failing because they, the animals are still nervous or? Iguanas, these particular species can be stressed fairly easily. Yes, I think they're more delicate in a sense in psychological um, care. Uh, so keeping them stress-free without too many people, like they get stressed around too many people. They really do, especially females. Males are more social and even in the wild, like a male will have actually hair from a female. He can have like it's been observed uh, between three to four up to 12 females that he will be herding on his tree or bush cluster area that he would patrol. And that's just like, that's in his blood to be more adventurous, to, you know, preserve the, his girlfriends. <laughs> and girls are quite opposite. They kind of attach themselves to a male. So they're very shy. They're, they're really not adventurous at all. They stick to a routine, uh, basically eat poop, eat poop bask, you know, that's just kind of all they want. And, you know, they are more stressed and I don't handle my female as much, nearly as much as my male. I just let her be. And she does what she does. If she wants to come out and roam, she does and she goes back. So I think being relaxed is one thing. Second thing, diet. Um, I was very specific since I went to the islands and I talked to biologists, I actually got the list of plants that they eat in the wild. So I don't just feed them grocery store plants. I try to grow little things here and there, what I can in San Diego and try to keep their diet a little bit more on track to what they would possibly eat in the wild. Obviously it's not the state, but it's, you know, it, I try to provide a lot more variety. Uh, I also provide live plants, which I think is critical for a female more so than a male. Um, females just have a tendency to be more private, so they need more bushes and somewhere to hide. And um, yeah, it's just kind of like it's a balanced keeping, perhaps, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And what type of things are you growing and feeding them that uh, that they would potentially be eating in the wild? Um, well, I acquired like a, a lot of hibiscus bushes, so they seem to really, um, they thrive on that. Um, I got people pie plants, they eat the leaves. I got some cherimoya, which is like a sugar apple, I think they call it in on the islands, and they eat some of the leaves. 
dandelions, some of the weeds. Um, and see what else do I have? Um, well, fig trees. I love figs. <laughs> Fresh figs. All iguanas. It's like crack to them. Oh, I bet. Uh, Sugar. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. But I also uh, work with the local farming, um, local CSA. It's a farm that grows a lot of greens. So I give them the list of things that I feed to my iguanas, and they grow what's seasonal and like watercress and some arugula, some of the kind of a wheat type greens, not just collard greens and you know mustard greens and stuff like that so they get a little bit more variety but i would say delicatissimo for the majority is they love leaves and flowers they just don't eat as much as veggies as green iguana would or cyclura would they prefer greens interesting yeah so that's i mean that's a huge piece right if they're not hitting their diet they're obviously not going to want to breed because it's kind of genetically they're designed to be eating a couple things or that's what they're used to to eating right well, yeah, like I said, well, in the wild, it's kind of interesting. I actually have the list that consists of 51 plants. Obviously, I can't grow that many. Right. <laughs> it just go, keeps going and going. It goes like, wow. But, <laughs> you know, but they pick and choose what they want based on season. And like any iguana, they have seasonal tastes. So in the winter, they might be less inclined to eat, you know, because it's cooler and the days are shorter. Um, and then in the spring, summer, they seem to be more thriving. Um, I also put put my iguanas on the daylight savings, not savings, daylight sunrise sunset schedule. So their day cycle is uh, synchronized to what it is with the sunrise and sunset. Um, I think that's kind of helpful them psychologically too. So they get to sleep more in the winter, which is natural for their natural habitat. Uh, on my iPhone, I actually keep the app of the weather of the local weather in the Guadalupe. <laughs> So I can see what their day and night temperatures are. So I try to follow that as strict as possible because I keep them indoors most of the day. Right. So and, uh, yeah, go ahead. Right now, how, what do you have in terms of how many animals do you have in your in your home right now? Well, I have six permanent pets. They're my pet iguanas. So I have four cyclora and two delicatissima. And um, I have babies from Delicatissima right now that I still have available. And some are on reserve and, you know, I'm just waiting for the spring weather so I can ship them. Um, but, yeah, that's, um, that's pretty much it. When I get Cyclura babies, you know, the number basically goes up and down in my household. My husband, never, my husband never knows how many ones I have. <laughs> oh, I get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, how many ones do we have? I'm like, I don't know. It depends. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in, in terms of their behavior, what's the difference between a cyclora and a delicatissima? Is there are they noticeably different behaviors or you know quote unquote personalities? Oh man, I think they're very different. Oh, okay. Um, to me, cyclora are you know lazier. If I had to compare two, I mean they can be active, but cyclora has tendency to be. They want to move as little as possible um, because at least my adults, you know, they kind of mature to a point they establish their routine. So they go to bask, they go to eat, um, they come out to roam for 30 minutes up to an hour, but not even every day they want to roam that much. They're just kind of very minimalistic. They get their needs met and the rest of the time they just bask or sit in the shade, bask, sit in the shade. They don't have like neediness to it. Um, in Delicatissima, I've noticed because they're arboreal creatures, they want to go up and down. They, they're really more active, especially male. Females, like I said, they have 
you know, again, similar to Cyclura, I would say, and more shy. But Don Juan, he can be active the whole day. He goes down, he comes, walks around, he checks, you know, he checks on every his corners, you know, you see what mommy's doing. He climbs my shoulder. He sits on me like a bird or pet, you know. He, I could be chopping greens and be sitting there supervising what I'm doing. So, and then he gets bored. He comes down, walks around, patrols, goes back up, like, yeah, yeah. All day long, he wants to be active. I mean, but I think that comes from their natural um, instincts to preserve the herd. Remember I told you like how a male can have multiple females and it takes energy to supervise and keep other males away. Um, in Cyclura, Cyclura are very territorial towards each other, but they also very um, secluded. Like they don't have, in my experience, at least in my animals, they don't have tendency to socialize like Delicatissima. So Cyclura wants to sit in their separate cages, do their separate things, and only want to meet during the mating season. Where Delicatissima, like I said, female attaches herself to the male. Like if you go somewhere, she has tendency to follow um, or, you know, or she just goes, down, goes back to her cage, aka tree, and she watches him. But he like circles around and like goes sees my Cyclura through the glass, of course. They can't mm -hmm. ever meet. Cyclura yeah. would... It, kill up it's like Lura would annihilate Delicatissima really? in like in one probably in 15 seconds there will be no Don one. Oh no so, are, they, yeah. are they that much bigger or I know their jaws are a lot you know more designed for for biting it looks like Cycluras are tanks that's yeah. what I call them oh, okay. they're, yeah they're like Cyclura can grow you know up to 20-25 pounds wow. my male my male at 15, uh, excuse my male is 13 years old and he is actually just almost 13 pounds now and he's still growing they can grow for the first 20 20 some years and some people say they may grow their entire lives till they reach that maximum you know weight like don juan is only two kilos if that makes that would yeah 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 so he's, he's not really that big he looks bigger in the pictures and the photos and he may he may reach to three kilos he may get to that he's still growing but i could tell he's not growing as much as he did for the first three and a half years. Interesting. So how long, what's the lifespan on, on these, on, on either of them? So, okay, Delicatissima, like I said, it's, again, just not too many people that kept them in captivity and the wild is like still fairly new research. I believe between 20 to 35 years with, with Delicatissima in the wild, uh, in the captivity, we still have to establish these, right. this data. Obviously, it's going to depend on how you keep them, what you feed them, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, Cyclura, um, yeah, they can live 60-plus years. I, I believe the oldest one that passed away in a zoo was Cyclura Lewisai at 67 years old. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, in captivity, each housing is a little bit individual, but right. each individual depends what they feed him and how relaxed or stressed animals are. But yeah, they can live a really long time. That was one of the reasons why we went cyclo instead of green iguanas as well, because of longevity. I get attached to my pets. I'm sure a lot of people do. Of course, yeah. And you want them to live as long as possible. So you literally get a pet for life, you know? So that, that's kind of cool. It's like going to make really good pets, but then they get big. <laughs> right. So in terms of both, uh, they obviously both make great pets, but for different reasons. Correct. So if yeah. someone wanted a, a pet that they had the extra space for and they wanted to live a little bit longer, that would be more Cyclora 
and then I guess smaller and more social will be the del delicatissima? I would say so. I think delicatissima generally can be happier in a smaller spaces than cyclora. Like, um, you know, Don Juan, it's interesting. Like I have actually a room that's about 20 by 25 feet. So it's not that big. It's like, but he seems to be very contented with that territory. There is access to other rooms and I can open it to have him come over. But a lot of times he's actually not that interested. He just circles that one area. He goes on the top of chairs and certain furniture that, you know, he visits and he just like does his little loops and he goes back to warm up, eats, comes down, does, does a loop, goes back up. And he doesn't seem to try to penetrate other rooms. Whereas Cyclora, you know, they, I have these barriers and they will push the barriers. They're like, like I said, they're like tanks, you know, when it's like a solid muscle. And if they get, make up their mind, they have to get into that room. They will find the way they will push through the barrier that will like scrape up the walls. They will be consistent and persistent till they get what they want. <laughs> so they do have these needs where they want a room, let's say twice that size. So I would say actually neither species would be really happy if you just had to lock them in a cage and keep them there all day long and weeks at a time and never let them out. So I think these are pets for people who don't just want to keep them locked up, but also would, you know, have safe and enough environment to let them, you know, in their household designated iguana proof area for them to explore more. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, that is one of the things they are such a big animal that you do need to make sure they're getting the exercise and whatnot oh absolutely it's good for their bones for the for the growth for their mental stimulation they get less cranky they won't be less it won't be as aggressive because i've heard seclura gets uh like i didn't have that case but people who keep them in more small environment like smaller rooms and smaller cages they want to seem to get more defensive of the territory and aggressive and that's not really not the pet you want no, yeah, especially if they're tanks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How important is it is natural sunlight? Do you use natural sunlight? Do you take them outside into your backyard or anything? I do. Um, and I'm very fortunate because I do live in South San Diego. And we do have fairly nice weather, I would say, nine, ten months out of the year. Even in the winter, there are days where it's like mid-70s, but with the sun, it makes it a lot warmer. So I try to take them outdoors as much as possible, even if it's for an hour. Um, but, you know, I have outdoor cages and I rotate my iguanas to take them out there. And babies, babies are obviously more sensitive to temperature, so I only take them outdoors during the optimal like mid eighties temperature and they have little sunning cages that I take them in and out. Yeah. Right. I think yeah. that's important. Yeah. And it's definitely one of the benefits of, of being somewhere South where I think, I think you're right. Yeah. The natural sunlight <laughs> is so important. And what, what kind of temperatures do you keep them in uh, inside? Are they just basically room temperature or, or do you have specific? Cause you were saying on your phone, you monitored the weather patterns for the Antillean islands. Well, uh, for Dedicatissima, they seem to be more sensitive to temperature than Cyclora is, I would say. Um, if you look at the weather, what's in Lesser Antilles, it's pretty much right spot on all year round. It's 70 to 75, 6 at night consistently. And it's uh, mid-80s during the day, consistently. The way the Lesser Antilles Islands are very unique position on the map. They 
kind of protected from a lot of hurricane weather. And uh, they, you know, even if there's big, massive storms, they somehow seem to always bypass them. So their temperature really never fluctuates. It's always the same all year round. So that's kind of what I try to mimic in their cages about, you know, my house stays fairly, you know, we have heater and air conditioner thanks to solar panels. <laughs> so running basically the same temperature in the house, like, you know, mid seventies to upper seventies during the summer. And then of course they go outdoors and their cages reach about mid eighties, high eighties in the cage. Whereas like Chlora seems to be more tolerant of cooler weather and also hotter weather. Uh, and again, as you look at the map where they originated from and how they um, developed in evolved, you know, the temperature can fluctuate a lot more. So like on Cayman and Cuban and Dominican Republic, where the uh, Dominican Republic, where all the cyclora or rock iguanas are from, you know, the temperature can vary more. So they get cooler weather due to storms. So it could go down to 60s even sometimes in the winter. And then vice versa, it could go to the 90s during the, you know, wave, heat wave. So, but again, in the house, I try to pretty much balance it all. And um, being outdoors here in San Diego, it's really optimal. We get similar weather, mid 80s uh, through the, most of the year. And right. I always bring them indoors at night. I don't leave yeah. my animals outdoors just for multiple reasons, coyotes, thieves, whatever, you name it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wouldn't trust it. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Uh, how do you toilet train an iguana? Ha ha ha. <laughs> Lots of time and patience, but I you bet. start young. You know, like anything else, um, to me, uh, iguanas are really as, as just as smart as a dog is. Just because they, you know, they're reptilian, it doesn't mean they're any dumber than a dog. So, iguanas, uh, at least Cyclura and um, Delicatissima, I found out, they have tendency not want to poop where they live. So, if they, if the cage is their base, and after they warm up in the morning, they have a routine. They warm up and they're ready to go do their business. So they would come down off the cage and uh, I would try to direct them to the area, designated area where they could go poop. But if you actually pick them up and put them on the toilet during that media time, they will go just fine on the toilet. You just have to be consistent and keep the schedule and be very patient. Of course, it's going to take them some time to figure it out that toilet is okay because they keep thinking maybe they're sitting on you and they don't want to poop on you. But, um, you know, if you do it every day, just like training a puppy, you would have to set the schedule. You would have to be available and you have to, you know, stick with it. <laughs> you can't just like not let do it. And cyclorus is amazing. Cyclorus can actually hold poop for two days. Wow. Not that I would want them to, but no. sometimes on the rainy day, whatever, they just don't want to come out. I don't force them to. So, but if they don't, they're like, okay, they'll just go the next day, but you better be available. But if you do have a larger, let's say if you don't just keep them in the cages, but you have large territory, like a room, um, you could, they usually want to go to the furthest area from there where they sleep, and that's what they would do business. So you could train your animal if you, let's say, have a free-roaming room territory for your iguana. They would specifically pick a spice where they would go poop. So, and then, you know, you just clean that one particular area. They're actually pretty smart. So you could do like okay. a litter box type situation. You can do litter boxes, puppy pads, you know, um, and I would say start them young because they have a routine early on and say like Clura bonds with people. 
So, so does Delicatissima, but Delicatissima, I would say the first two years, a little, little skittish, not as easy to bond right away as Cyclora is. So every morning, do you take each one to the bathroom? Yep, is, I do. That's, your, that's part that's, of your routine. That's part of my routine. Yep. Um, and like I said, they Cyclora sometimes, you know, because we both, me and my husband work out of the house. So we have that privilege. You know, if I'm out of the house, I actually have a designated iguana sitter who comes in and helps me with it. Um, I also have outdoor cages during the summer. It's not so problematic. I just can take them outdoors and they do their business outdoors. But generally speaking, it's all managed on the schedule. Yeah. It's a That's lot awesome. of work, <laughs> but I don't but the have to. Helps. I don't have to clean poop out of the cages, you know. Hey, that—that's nice. That's a huge benefit. Like cages must stay fairly clean then, besides yeah, making they, mess from eating. No, they just don't. They're just not gonna go poop in their cages. They will hold as long as they can, and then, like I said, I don't want to torture them, so I let them out, and it works. Do, do you do you feed them every single day? I do. Oh, you do. Okay, um, yeah, I was. I do because they're vegetarian. Um, you know, they it's. They graze, though I have seen, um, again, in the winter, there are days when it's like so gloomy and cloudy and somehow they know it doesn't matter. The cages I set for optimal UV sunlight and the heat, but there is something they must understand or barometrical pressure or something in that triggers their brain saying it's a cloudy, rainy day. So they won't be as active. Sometimes they won't want to eat as much. Um, so, I mean, they can technically know winter skip a day or two here and there and it's not problematic so i don't consider that's like oh animal abuse no it's fine you know but generally i, I provide i i have tendency to provide food every day if it, it's available to them if they want to eat interesting yeah i mean i you're totally right reptiles do seem to have a really strong grasp of the atmosphere or something going on because mine will be the same thing well it'll be gloomy outside and you know they won't eat for a day or two like geckos and and you just go, okay, I guess they know it's rainy yeah, outside or it's cold outside. And it's fine. If you think of a, you know, their natural habitat, I'm sure there are days when it's cloudy and rainy or something spooks them or they feel stressed. You know, they just sit in their hides and or don't get off their tree or whatever, you know, that iguanas do. They're just not always inclined or they're not starving. You know, I think in, in captivity, we probably feed them more than they would eat in the wild, I would imagine, because <laughs> we provide the you know, abundance of, at least I do, I seem to provide abundance of food and make it available to them. But, um, you know, one of the things with my uh, Delicatissima female, um, I was kind of trying to hor um, normalize her hormones because I was thinking she was producing eggs a little too often than she should be. So I actually reduced her food. Um, it's still too early to say if that helped or not, but, you know, it's... So you think she was just producing too many clutches per year type thing? Yeah, she was double clutching for me, which is unusual from what I understand. Again, not many scientists or anybody can confirm how often do they lay eggs in the wild. Do they do it once a year, twice a year? Not like It's not like people walking around studying every single female. It's just not happening. Zoos don't have them. Um, and the only people who have them is just like very few individuals and some people just like so private they don't want to share any information i think i'm the only one that's like upfront and open about everything i do regarding delicatissima i am very transparent with it if you visit my delicatissima club group on facebook like i post everything there like how many clutches i have what i did you know how they lay eggs uh, what do they eat how do i treat them like you know it's just to me it's you know obviously 
I want people to succeed who have them in the future. Otherwise, we'll have no delicatissima in 20 years. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to do it. And what, what are some of the, the most common questions people have about delicatissima? You know, um, hmm, well, most people, um, I don't know. I don't really get that many questions regarding delicatissima. I mean, I guess they're regarding the care, but I would say, you know, it's somewhat similar to green iguana. Uh, but it does have few specific differences. Like I said, they are absolutely arboreal. They need height. Um, you know, there's a little bit difference how you keep juveniles versus the adults because I've started noticing like by, you know, by observing my own babies and raising Don Juan and Venus from babies to, you know, their maturity and kind of a seeing they have different needs at different stages of their life, I would say. And it's uh, you know, that's kind of a, some of the information I can certainly share with anybody who wants to obtain them. And, you know, from me, I can, I'm more than happy to share all my personal information about it. But um, I mean, diet, I guess people ask, well, generally they can be okay on similar diet that what green iguana eats. But again, the long-term effects, we still don't know. As I guess, you know, I try to stick as close as possible to greens and flowers. I don't feed a lot of supplements or, um, you know, veggies and like store-bought mixes and stuff to them because I see how their preferences seem to change what they want to eat at times of the year. But, you know, I, I mean, I, like I said, just not many people really know about them. And the, the people who have done some research or study about them or want to keep them, you know, then they basically tell me, they just, not instead of asking me, they just tell me what to do and right. I will tell you what to do. And mm -hmm. I tell you what worked for me. Right. Yeah. They're a very interesting animal because they're almost like, uh, the igua green iguana is such a big pet and it has a lot of downsides the aggression like we already talked about delicatissima seems to solve a lot of those issues they maybe part partly the reason why they're struggling in the wild mate would is the reasons that it makes them good animals to have in captivity um yeah i think like i was like i said i had no expectations how to what to expect from them but longer i keep them more fascinated i get how cool of a pet they can be a um, couple other people that I talk to or exchange messages who keep them also confirmed that you know similar things that males seem to be social though again I think I'm the only one who actually handles my delicatissima on daily basis other people keep them more of a display pets um, and then females seem to be more shy so for somebody who wants to get them um, I would say get a male or get a pair because female, just getting a single female would not be good because unless you're going to be her daddy, <laughs> you know, she <laughs> needs that interaction. She needs to be attached to somebody. Um, otherwise, they would get feel stressed, I think. So, yeah, but males are actually really entertaining. Don Juan is like, is he's hilarious. He walks around, bobs his head. He like, he's a little boss of the house, <laughs> but really harmless, really harmless. Yeah. Well, I, I really do hope that this is the start of a wave of, of, you know, helping these guys out because obviously we don't want to lose the species off the planet and they're, they're a really interesting species. So anything that trade can do that's positive, I always look on and, you know, thankful for that. 
Yeah, me too. And then that's, um, you know, like I said, I, I'm passionate about this species because they're really, they stole my heart and they're fascinating to keep in the house. Because If you like interaction, like I said, they don't have to be a display animal, so you can interact with them, um, you know, because males actually enjoy it, I think, quite a bit. When they get past that fear of a human, then they, it's like literally within a week, he clicked from like, Oh my God, don't touch me human to like, Oh, you're kind of cool. I can climb you and you give me treats. All right. All right. I can ride your shoulder. All right. All right. I'm totally done with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you can tell their brains turning. It's like, all right. So <laughs> you're not eating me. You're actually petting me. All right. That's good. So well, that- the fact that they're breeding tells you that they're comfortable. I mean, typically an animal that's stressed out, is not going to breed. That's kind of my understanding is again, from, I can only speak from my personal experience, but, um, Again, like moving, here's another thing with iguanas. I think people who acquire them and then they rehome them and then somebody else acquires them or they move them from cage to cage, this room to that room. Every move stresses the heck out of them. So um, because they have to rewire their routine, their surroundings, they pay attention to sounds, to uh, lights, to any furniture, any new object. So if you move them around, even within the same household, it stresses them out for months. So I think being more predictable and if you acquire an animal just you know find a more permanent space for them keep them there you know as long as you obviously can um and also by people who require rehomed or you know they buy sell trade animals and then just keep it for a few months they get disappointed they trade something else you know animals who've been through uh, several households will have psychological trauma i think so I don't know how good of a breeder that would make, you know, if somebody just wants to keep them just for breeding and doesn't really, you know, keeps trading them. I don't think these species would do well. I think that was part of the reason they had problem with the zoos because they had from one zoo, they trust them to different research facility. You know, they try to work, somebody tries to work with them and then, and they just didn't succeed. They transfer them back. And then at the end, they just perished because too much stress. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, uh, you're so right. It can take months for reptiles to get used to a new environment. I know when I moved, I think about a year and a half ago to a new apartment and my animals did not act normal for literally like months. Yeah. Like I was, I was starting to get worried. Yeah. It was like three, four months and then they started to be more active and whatnot. So for anyone that's listening, that's, you know, when you make a change, it, it can take a long time for them to become. Yeah, because reptiles really specifically, they're creatures of habit so you know we moved houses also uh say eight years ago and it took anywhere between a couple of months up to a year depending on different cyclora to adjust so i mean yasha my first cyclora uh it took her a year to completely completely adjust so it's just they're always like paranoid little scared this is new you know that's like you take them from something they know to completely new and people who rehome them like between different personalities. Now you suddenly is a different human, you know, different approach, different voice, different clothing. They pay attention to everything, you know, different ambient light, different, you know, it's just a lot of stress for them. They're not like cats and dogs, so they don't acclimate as easy at all. No, I totally agree. And uh, it's really, really interesting. And I, I wanted to hear like maybe a two minute story about uh, your last trip to Mexico. We were just talking about, uh, I, <laughs> I want to wrap up soon, but at sure. the beginning, we were kind of talking about you were, uh, you were looking at studying some of those lizards there. Well, you know, going to 
Mexico to me is just a fun trip. I don't really per se, you know, study them too hard there. Um, yeah, it's yeah. the same place we go to every year. So you get to learn, you know, the um, spiny tail iguanas are, you know, specifically predominant in that area. And they are very shy, uh, but going there from year to year, you see the same ones living in the same area. And, they, and it's interesting, um, like, I've been in the same place for six years, and then you see the same iguana living in the same freaking rock <laughs> for six years. I mean, obviously, they have a cave and they go eat, but they're like so, even in the wild and, you know, in the freedom, they seem to confine themselves to specific areas. And then you see another male comes in and they start fighting the territory for females. And then but it, it's, it's really fascinating to just observe them in the wild. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there was one iguana because he had a jaw deformity. So I named him Jaw Jaws um, because he just stood out. You know, it's him because of his little deformity. I think he, at the early ages, he might've had some fight with some other male perhaps that uh, created a little bit of the underbite and like little twisty things on his jaws. But so I toss him some hibiscus, keep him a little fattened up and he knows, you know, he knows, okay, this human brings me hibiscus. So, all right, all right, you're cool. But, um, after year, year, I've, I've noticed with the natural sunlight, um, the deformity actually got better. In the last three years, every time I go there, it's improved and improved, which, you know, nobody cares for these iguanas. They're fully free roamed. They eat what they eat naturally. Yet he was able to heal himself and kind of regenerate or re reconstruct, well, not really reconstruct, but I guess just heal in a natural way where it's like barely noticeable at this point which is quite an amazing observation for me considering you know it's just i don't know i mean he looked pretty bad a few years ago but yeah it's interesting yeah, i mean reptiles are incredibly rugged and mm -hmm. i guess they, they can survive through a lot so, but you're probably right the natural sunlight probably has a lot to do with the the bone bones like restructuring or exactly or and i mean i see a lot of them unfortunately with uh regrown tails that seems to be a big deal between these species i don't know i guess a lot of females have dropped or fought or whatever their tails pretty much on majority of them are re regenerated um, so do males. It's very rare to see like a one perfect male with everything intact, including the tail and spikes and jaws and no injuries and no scars. Uh, yeah, they, they, you know, they, they fight for territory. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah. They're that's, that's, and I think on your Instagram, you have pictures of some of these guys that you saw down in Mexico. Yeah. I was just getting fascinated. So I, I, I can't stop taking pictures. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Can you let everybody know where your Instagram, Facebook, and, and website are? Sure. Yeah. So most of you probably have seen me on social media. I go by reptile function. Um, so on Instagram, it would be reptile underscore function. And uh, Facebook, I am an admin of Cyclura Friends group. So a lot of people interact, you know, ask questions uh, on there. I also have my reptile function official Facebook page where I post a lot of iguanas and my personal page were not a carl scene well you'll see all sorts of posts <laughs> but a lot of them are iguanas <laughs> right yeah that's and i'll make sure everything's posted in the show notes so everybody can see and i really thank you so much for coming on because you i think you are a trailblazer in this in this industry or this this part of the the hobby so uh, it's really great to hear from you and i know everybody's going to want to hear the story so thank you so well, much Well, thank you dylan it was such a pleasure and i'm i'm happy to share it because like i said it's my passion it's not like business that I have to work at. It's just something I just enjoy and love and I'm always into learning. Oh, that's the way to do it. So, and, uh, oh yeah. And if th those who are interested in Delicatissima, I do have a Facebook 
group called uh, Delicatissima Club. It's you know closed little group, but not a lot of members. But you will learn a lot if you're interested in species. Awesome! I'll make sure that's in the show notes as well, so people can find that and they can join and and maybe Perfect. get one of your animals one day. Yeah, I'm happy to help. <laughs> awesome. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Again, thanks, Renata, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And thank you for TNT Reptiles on Instagram. Definitely go check them out because they're the one that recommended Renata as a guest. And I really, really appreciate that. I hope that you guys got the same sense that I did when I was having the conversation with Renata that every decision she makes is based off of what would be best for the animals. And her results are speaking for themselves. Her animals are breeding, they're healthy. And, you know, she is really a trailblazer. She's doing this on her own. There's not a ton of care sheets or evidence or, or research that's done on these animals. So it is all about her studying the animals and learning what they're like and making sure that they're going to proper homes when she does sell them, which I think is a fantastic standard for everybody in the hobby. If you are enjoying the Animals at Home podcast, make sure you go to animalsathome.ca slash podcast. You can learn how to support. Uh, if you'd like to buy a t-shirt, Go to animalsathome.ca slash shop. You can buy a t-shirt or a sweater. $5 for every shirt does get donated to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy. And share the content. Subscribe on iTunes and YouTube. Uh, Definitely helps me. I just recently made a promo video for the podcast. It's available on Facebook and Instagram. Like, comment on that. Share that with your friends. Get the word out. I know lots. I'm getting tons of positive feedback on the podcast. And I'm just trying to share it as much as I can. And any help that you guys can give me in that regards would be amazing. I will talk to you guys next time.